Let me tell you a story, podcast number 31. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind. It is a truth universally You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Our authors on this podcast are women who live from one end of the country to the other. Patricia Watkins lives in Southern California. Vera Anderson resides in Eastern Idaho. Patricia Deal is a Nevada resident. Christine McCord lives in another corner of the West. And Lisa Buffalo is way over in Tennessee. Many thanks to these wonderful, sweet ladies for sharing their thoughts with us today. I'll begin with a short piece by Patricia Watkins about Christmas dinner from the perspective of a fork, titled Christmas Tine. And then I'll read from Patricia Deal's book, titled The Women Who Knew Him. Christmas Tine by Patricia Watkins. Oh, woe is me. My time of glory is so short. I wait all year for this day. Now it's here, and it'll all be over before I know it. I tried my hardest to hold my shine, but I didn't make it past the 4th of July. By then, three of my tines had started to turn that horrid black color I hate so much. By Halloween, I was a complete mess, mottled and dark from handle to tip. Patty Ann has spent all morning polishing me and my cousins, the salad forks. Now we are all lined up, glowing brightly, shimmering silver, reflecting the flickering candlelight in all directions. We wait silently, patiently, while the grabbers vie for the coveted seats and finally seat themselves. I am much relieved to know I've been assigned to Mary Ann's place, as she is a gentle grabber, no clunking or skittering across the floor like last year when I was subjected to little Tommy's throwing tantrums. With a sigh, I relax, while a reverent grace is said by Father Cassidy. Soon I am floating smoothly into the air. I can see the glittering candles and the sparkling beaded garland that weaves down the middle of the table. Oh, how I enjoy this view. All too quickly, I am plunged into the jiggling cranberry sauce. A chill comes over me as Marianne lifts me and my load politely to her mouth. I pass her red lips and slide the tangy treat onto her tongue while I hold my breath. I agree with her when she tells Aunt Laura this year's cranberry sauce is the best ever. Christmas after Christmas, the pattern is the same. Soar, plunge, soar again, and then I rest in darkness. I know it's an honor to be part of the special silverware family, but often I wish I'd been born into the everyday family. Then I could spend many more of my days shining in the light instead of sleeping in the dark, slowly losing my glow in my padded oak box. The Women Who Knew Him by Patricia Deal. This is the first chapter in her book titled His Mother, Mary. 
I was kneading bread dough at my mother's kitchen table when the room blazed with light. Out of the corner of my eye, I glimpsed a person standing beside me. I must have gasped because he said, Do not be afraid, Mary. His voice was deep and resonant. I am the angel Gabriel sent by God to tell you he has chosen you to give birth to a son. You will name your son Jesus. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and a kingdom never-ending. Angel from God? God chose me? Give birth? My hands clenched in the dough, squishing it through my fingers as his words whirled in my brain. A practical thought somehow managed to surface. How can I have a baby? I am a virgin. Gabriel smiled. God's Holy Spirit will make this possible through his mighty power. Remember, Mary, nothing is too difficult for God. As I stood there trembling, I realized Yahweh, the holy, unknowable God of the Jews, loved me, Mary, the daughter of Eliakim. He loved me so much he chose me for this awesome task. Such a thought gave me the surety I could take on the responsibility Gabriel had placed before me. I looked up into his face. I am willing, sir. In a heartbeat, the angel disappeared and the unearthly light enveloping me began to dissipate. I reached for the stool before the hearth and sat, my eyes fixed on the smoldering coals, my bread dough completely forgotten. I had seen an angel, had even talked to an angel. My friends would never believe my story. I was not sure my parents would either. Father came home for supper, unaware the meal was not immediately ready, nor that I would start to say something and stop in the middle of my thought. Your mother should be home sometime tomorrow, he said. She sent word by one of the herders who came by the shop today. Mother had gone to Capernaum to be with my older sister, Salome, who had just born a baby boy child. She had trouble conceiving and had begged mother to be present for the birth. Mother had miscarried four children before the birth of Salome and me, so she understood my sister's fear. It would be good to have her back home, but I felt a bit nervous about her return. I went to bed that night wondering how to tell my parents about the angel's visit. Would they believe me? What about my husband-to-be, Joseph? My mind seemed to have a life of its own, but the fatigue from excitement and emotional ferment went out, and I slept until daybreak. Father arrived for his noon meal the next day with Mother close behind him. My dears, I wish you could see little James, less than two weeks old, and he is rearing up, looking around to see what there is to see. Within minutes of pulling up stools to the table to eat the cheese and grapes I had laid out, including the mistreated bread dough from yesterday, now baked, we heard a knock on the door. It was Chileab, a herdsman who often sold livestock to Father for his butcher's shop. Come, my friend, and refresh yourself, boomed Father. I have good news to share. I accept with thanks, but I did not come to beg a meal. Amidst descending noises from Father, the man continued. I have journeyed most recently from the hill country of Judea, and bring word, mistress, and he nodded to Mother, that your kinswoman Elizabeth, wife of the priest Zechariah, has need of assistance. He must leave in a few days to fulfill his duty roster at the temple in Jerusalem and she has asked that Mary come stay with her during his absence. I wonder why Elizabeth would make such a request, Mother asked. She is with child, and as you know, is well along in years, replied Chileab. That comma truly raised a hubbub. Elizabeth, a woman even older than Mother, 
had been barren her entire marriage. Who had ever heard of such a happening? Please, mother, please, father, allow me to go help Elizabeth. I had pleasant memories of this kinswoman who had proven to be a trustworthy confidant during her past visits to our home. Mother and father were nervous about my traveling alone, but Chiliab's reassuring words won them over. Mary can make the trip with me and my partner and his wife. She's a reputable woman, well able to provide watchful care over your daughter. The next morning I awoke just as the sun's beginning glow lightly touched the Galilean hills. Checking once more to see if I had packed adequately, I hugged mother and father and ran to the departure point of the small caravan heading for Judea. My chaperone seemed to be shy, speaking few words to anyone, including her husband. I was free to think about the exciting turn my life had taken in the past three days. There had been no time to consider the proper approach I should use in telling my parents and Joseph of the angel's visit and what was soon to take place. I had always felt comfortable telling Elizabeth anything, and now I had a big anything to test her wisdom. We arrived at my cousin's home after a two-day trip, and within the hour Zechariah left for his temple duty. His appearance was friendly, but he spoke not a word. Elizabeth welcomed me with a hug, and after I was settled comfortably, she shared her fascinating story. Last temple duty time, Zechariah was performing his allotted tasks when an angel appeared and told him we would have a son. When Zechariah questioned the pronouncement, the angel stated his name was Gabriel. Gabriel, I gasped. I'm sorry, Elizabeth, please continue. She looked at me strangely and then went on. Gabriel told Zechariah his disbelief would bind its tongue until the child was born. This is why you heard no speech from my husband upon your arrival. Elizabeth, this is wonderful news, a baby. I'm so happy for you, but what of your husband's inability to speak? Are you fearful for him? No, I trust the word of God that came by Gabriel. After all, we do not want two mutes in this household. She laughed, and I glimpsed the playful spirit I had remembered from past visits. Now it is your turn, Mary, for I sense you are bursting with a story of your own. I proceeded to tell Elizabeth about my visit from Gabriel and what was even now taking place in my body. Oh, my dear, she hugged me close, or as close as was possible for a woman in her seventh month. That is why my baby jumped for joy inside of me when I saw you enter our courtyard. Yahweh has shown you great favor. I also am blessed to shelter the mother of my Lord. I could not keep my lips closed. My whole self praises the Lord, I sang. We praise you, Lord, with all our beings. We praise your holy name, we sang together. I like to think God smiled down as a girl 15 years and a woman three times that age offered up praises together. I stayed with Elizabeth until her son John was born. It was during those days of waiting that Elizabeth counseled me as to how I might tell my parents my betrothed Joseph of my angelic visit. For those few sheltered weeks, I put the impending confrontation from my mind and reveled in the peace of perfect understanding and love that Elizabeth offered. Back home in Nazareth, Mother noted a difference in my appearance. Mary, your stay with Elizabeth has made you bloom. You must be growing up, for your face is fuller, and you are gaining the curves of a young woman. She smiled. My little girl is becoming an adult. I knew the time for revealing Gabriel's news had come. Using a trip to Father's butcher stall as a reason to leave the house, I also included a detour to Joseph's carpenter shop. My serious but kind fiancé laid his plane on the surface he was smoothing 
and greeted me with a smile. Mary, my dear, I heard you were back from a long stay in Judea. Have you come to tell me tales of your adventures? Not exactly, Joseph, but I, we would like you to join us for our evening meal. And I do have something to tell you, all of you. I whirled around and left the shop, walking rapidly in the direction of home. I will be there, Mary, I heard him say, and I could imagine the smile on his face at my timid action. Mother crooked her eyebrow at me when I told her of my invitation to Joseph. Could you not have spoken to me first, Mary? Your impetuous actions have not improved with your years, she sighed. It is too late for us to mend our leniency with you now, child. Your Joseph may rue the day he contracted to marry the youngest child from the house of Eliakim. But enough of this. Let us start meal preparation for our dinner guest. I will use the mutton you just fetched. Bring in some onions and carrots from the storage room. No more was said about my behavior. After clearing away the remnants of Mother's delicious mutton stew, we joined Father and Joseph in front of the hearth. Twisting my fingers into knots, I said, It is time to tell you what happened to me just before I left for Elizabeth's home in Judea. As I related my story of the angelic visitor and his message, I could see the muscles tighten around Joseph's eyes and his mouth. Father sat like a statue while Mother clasped and unclasped her hands, shifting her weight on the hearthstool. When I finished, Father took a deep breath and turned to Joseph. Does she speak the truth, or are you the one who has made her with child? I swear upon the law of Moses and in the presence of Yahweh, this child of which Mary speaks is not mine, stated Joseph with a choking sound. He turned to me. I must give your account much thought, Mary. With that, he got up from his stool and left, a dazed look at his eyes. I could not blame Joseph for his abrupt departure. I had lived with this knowledge for more than three months, and only a moment ago, each sentence I uttered must have felt like an axe destroying one of his well-made tables. I turned to my parents. Father, I would never wish to disgrace you or your name. Mother, I would not lie about such a happening. Please believe me, I pleaded. Father cleared his throat. Your mother and I must also ponder your words, for no one in our family has born children outside of marriage nor has anyone in our family seen and talked with an angel. He cleared his throat again. Go to bed, child. May you rest better than your mother, and I will. Here's a poem that's untitled. It's by Vera Anderson. Moonbeams bouncing off a blanket of snow In the field, deer darkly silhouetted in the glow. Coyotes yipping first, close, then far. Up above sparkles a distant star. Back and forth hoot the owls amongst the trees. Thoughts and memories are stirred on nights like these. Fireplace and Christmas lights lend warmth to the chill. How blessed we are by God's grace and goodwill. couple of quotes. This one by Irma Bombeck. Christmas and Thanksgiving dinners take 18 hours to prepare. 
They are consumed in 12 minutes. Football halftimes take 12 minutes. This is not a coincidence. <laughs> and then this one by Victor Borgia. Santa Claus has the right idea. Visit people once a year. I like Vera Anderson's poem that Steve just read because it describes what winter is like for those who live outside of city lights. Uh, now I'm going to read from Christine McCord's Christmas novel titled The Santa Society. This book, which is a very fun read, was released a couple years ago, but it, it's still available, and um, I think you'll enjoy it. Here is a sample from the first chapter. I turned 30 years old the day I killed my mother. It was Christmas, officially the worst day of my life. I haven't slept much since then. My heart aches, and now I'm stuck here alone in Christmasville, where joy, peace, and yuletides pervade everything, except me. I'm just a hollow participant, a recluse, and I hate Christmas. End of story. At least I wish it could be that simple. Soon a year will have passed. Late November has almost completed its colorful passage into the bereavement of winter. All around me I see an artist's palette, burnt orange, flaming ruby, and vivid gold adorn every tree and blade of grass like jewels. A Milky Way wrapper tumbles across the pavement and I kick it aside. My eyes don't care about beauty, but if they did, they would compare these garnishments to earrings and pendants worn by a proud and loving earth as she heralds the nearness of the biggest day of the year, which, of course, is Christmas, the finale of life embodied in birth, celebration, and the joy of giving. For me, it's the anniversary of the worst day of my life, the day I shouldn't have been born, and the day I honored the only wish on my mother's Christmas list, to die at home. I should have burned the list. As I neared the coffee shop, I step over a leash tied to a tree. A large dog wiggles his rear end at me as though I'll scratch his ears and indulge in his silky fluff of cinnamon-colored fur. I stumble as he wraps his leash around my legs mid-stride. He loves to make new friends. The deepest voice I've ever heard comes out of nowhere. Looks like he caught you. He laughs. I turn to see a tall man leaning against the corner of the old building that houses the coffee shop. He wears a black cowboy hat, stands with one knee lifted just enough to rest the bottom of his shoe on the wall, and holds a large paper cup in his right hand. Wisps of steam rise out of the plastic hole in the lid, reminding me of a chimney of chimney smoke. Just above his head, a hand-painted message stretches across the umber bricks. Fall in love with a mistletoe blend. He wears the words like a second hat. I wonder how I miss seeing him, but abandon the thought as a cold, wet nose nuzzles my palm. The dog gazes up at me with gigantic eyes. His nose and mouth are pink and overpronounced, like a primate. He wears an intense expression, as if he fancies himself a person and expects a proper conversation. I find it hard not to speak to him. Hi there, I bend down to scratch behind his ear. The dog bows his head to me, a quick maneuver that mimics a formal greeting. It leaves me wondering if he did it intentionally. I blink at him. 
He looks at my feet with a sharp downward cast and lifts his large head just as sharply to meet my eyes again. He waits, alert and expectant. What a strange face for a dog. For a moment I begin to feel imposed upon by his intensity. I just wanted a cup of coffee. Now I'm caught in a social interaction, as though this dog and I know each other, as though I run into him in the aisle of a grocery store. I squat down. Immediately I know I've chosen the correct response. He leans into me and rests his shoulder, his head on my shoulder. From this angle, he's taller than me. The man laughs again. He likes you. Despite myself, I relax into his fur. I haven't been in such close proximity to another living being since. I close my eyes and see my mother's face. I feel her arms holding, feel my arms holding her, wanting to keep her with me and never let her go. Just as my chest seizes with sorrow that haunts me, I shove her memory away with as much force as I can summon. As I open my eyes, I sit back on my heels. The dog raises his head and looks me right in the eye. Somehow he knows what I've done. He does not turn his back on me, though. He waits. I still haven't spoken to the man who leans on the wall. I hear his shoes scuff the pavement and realize he's taken a few steps closer. I look up. What kind of dog is this? The kind who knows a lot. For a moment, laugh lines swallow his dark eyes. When his face relaxes, curiosity shapes them round like glittering onyx. I realize he's probably not much older than me, maybe even my age. No, I mean what breed? I clarify, trying to decide if he means to be funny or serious. Oh, well, that's a good question, no idea. I turn back to the dog and rub the sides of his face in different directions. It gives him a mushy look like Play-Doh in my hands. He closes his eyes. He looks like a mastiff. I had one once as a kid. He's the color of a chocolate lab, though. I agree, he says. Well, I better get going. I glance at my watch and see I've wasted more time than I should have. The early bird special ends in five minutes. I give the dog one last pat on his head. He watches me rise to my feet with a confused look on his face, as though he expects me to remain here on the sidewalk, petting him for forever. I nod at the man, trying to be polite. I don't look at his eyes this time, only his chin. He gives me another quick smile and checks his own watch. It looks like an antique, one of those manual ones with gold sides and a numbered face. It's attached to the leather band with a knob on the side for winding. He lets go of his sleeve and the watch disappears. Me too. He reaches for the front of his cowboy hat and straightens it with a sharp tug, then holds his arm out in a gentlemanly fashion, allowing me to go first. I pull my scarf tighter and step around the dogs. I continue on to the door. I can see through the window that it's empty of patrons. Not many people get up this early on a Saturday, which is exactly why I'm here in the first place. As I reach for the door, I see the dog's reflection in the window of the storefront. He watches me from behind as the man leans down to give him a quick pat and speaks to him in a low voice. I can't make out what he says. Then, instead of untying his dog from the tree, he tosses his cup in the trash can and walks away. Alone. He passes behind me as he heads up the street in the direction of the town square. Before I can stop myself, I call after him. Hey, why are you leaving him here? He turns back just as he presses the crosswalk button at the corner. Because he doesn't belong to me. He gives me another one of his crinkly-eyed smiles. He doesn't? Nope.
I glance around the street. It's still empty, except for the three of us. Is he kidding? Oh, my voice deflates like a balloon. He's been out here a while. He's probably getting cold. Maybe you should take him home. No, somebody put him here. I'm sure they'll come back to get him soon. Maybe so, he shrugs and looks around. And if not, you can reconsider. He seems to like you. Why can't you take him home? You were here first. I tense as I realize he's leaving me stuck with this dog situation, abandoned. I would, but I have enough animals, and I stay pretty busy. Well, I need to sell my house and move. Besides, I don't even want a dog. The dog looks at me with round, amber eyes, and I feel guilty for the insult. Worse, I realize he's shivering. The tag on his collar makes a soft clinking sound. A tag, that's good. There'll be a number on it, probably even an address. No big deal. I hear the man approach, stepping through leaves on the sidewalk. When I turn to look, I see him dig in his back pocket. He pulls out some kind of small silver case with scroll work engraved on it. He opens it and extracts a cream-colored rectangle. He offers it to me. It's a business card. If you need assistance selling your home, I'd be pleased to offer my services. I specialize in hard-to-sell properties. I bet you do. I eye him with irritation for a long moment before I accept the card. He isn't willing to stick and help stick around and help this dog, but he's more than willing to sell my house. Thanks. I shove it in my pocket without looking at it. You're very welcome. He turns to walk away again. When he reaches the crosswalk, I see it is timed perfectly for his return. It now displays a green man walking inside the black box. He calls back to me as he makes his way across the street. And hey, don't worry about the dog. I'm sure he knows what he's doing here. I hear him chuckle like he said something funny, but I turn my back on both of them. I have one minute left to get a half-price coffee. I'm not wasting it. An hour has passed. I sip the last dregs of my second overly sweetened coffee, knowing that the dog watches me as I drink. I still feel his eyes on me, even though half an hour ago I moved to another chair so my back faces him. It's hard to indulge in hot coffee when a shivering dog stares at you from, a cold, from the cold side of a window. Not a soul has entered the shop other than me. I sit here alone watching the large woman who owns the place wipe the counter above the pastry displays. She hums while she works, her hair bound in a massive bun, and like usual it's shrouded in a white net, an entire hairnet devoted to one bun. We never speak much, but, she's all, but she always smiles. If I could still be a woman who valued eye contact, I would probably know more about her. As it is, I know only that three of me could fit into her apron, that she speaks with a heavy accent, and she yells at a small, skinny man who works in the back. The dog has a tag, I remind myself. Thoughts of not being able to get in contact with the owner nag at me. I'm not sure why I feel this is my problem. I didn't put him there. I don't even know him. A thought suddenly occurs to me. Excuse me, I call to the woman who now cleans the tables around me, even though no one's used them since I've been here. She looks up at me as though I'm unexpected, a discovery she sees for the first time. She wipes at the sweat above her lip and eyes me curiously. Yes? That dog outside, is he yours? She cranes her neck to see where I point. Oh, she smiles and her cheeks expand at her jawline like rising muffin tops. Oh, no, not my dog. Probably cold out there, no? So much for that idea. Did you see who put him there? Oh, no, I see nobody put him. I just look, and he is there. She motions with her hands to emphasize her surprise. The washcloth dangles from her fist as she clucks her tongue and turns away. Now I'm eye level with her backside as she wipes the last table. 
Only mine remains. When she finishes, she shuffles away and disappears through the kitchen door. I lift my cup and realize I've already taken the last sip. I don't have any further reason to sit here except for the one I'm avoiding, tied to the tree outside. I rise from my chair and gather my trash from the table, shoving used sugar and creamer packets into one of the empty cups. I toss it at it all in the trash and head for the door. The bell jingles and the dog gets to his feet to watch me step out onto the sidewalk. I survey the area again but still don't see anyone around. I focus on his tag, crossing the space between us without looking directly at his face. This is a task, a quick duty, that's all. I lift the red tag to read it. Someone has engraved the name K-L-A-U-S on it. I say it in my mind like house, but with a K sound. Klaus. I flip it over and my heart sinks. It's blank. Great, I say out loud. His, his ears perk up. He gives me that queer once over again, and so he reads me. I realize his leash has slipped to the base of the tree. Whoever tied him here didn't do it very securely. They only wrapped it around the trunk. I can just walk home now, pretend I've never met this dog, and have no idea he shivers out here in the cold, barely tied to a tree. At least there's no traffic yet, and I've done worse things, like the cancer decision. I should have talked my mother out of dying, especially dying at home. Nothing about it felt dignified. I can't get it out of my head. I should have taken her to the hospital. Done something, but I didn't. So this... Leaving this dog here for someone else to deal with? It's not that big of a deal. I start walking home. Behind me, I hear silence. Then, the faint clink of a dog tag. I know, even before I feel his soft snout brush my hand. He's following me. Becky usually reads from her first fiction book, Winds of Wyoming, but I'm going to give her voice a break. I'm going to read the last part of, the, of chapter five. Kate parked her Honda in front of a small log cabin snuggled into a copse of evergreens. She liked the cozy look of the cabin and knew she'd feel at home in it. Cyrus, who'd walked over, stopped to gape at her car. What kind of contraption is that? Contraption? Yeah. He gripped his belt with his gnarled fingers. Looks like one of them foreign outfits. It's a Japanese-made Honda, which I suppose looks out of place in this land of SUVs and dual-cab pickups. He squinted at her. You a tree hugger? Not necessarily, but my car gets good gas mileage. He opened the cabin door before lifting two suitcases from the back of the Honda. What in tarnation were you doing in a godforsaken place like Pittsburgh? The incredulous look on his crinkled face made her laugh. She shifted the box she held. I was born and raised there. Guess you'll have to blame my parents. So what brings you clean out west other than the internship thing? This was beginning to feel like a police interrogation, something she didn't care to repeat. But she answered his question. I've wanted to visit here ever since my dad read stories about a Wyoming horse ranch to me and my little brother. When I learned about the internship and possible future employment at Whispering Pines, I thought it might be a good fit. His right eyebrow shot up, pulling a web of wrinkles halfway up his forehead. Possible future employment? You moved hundreds of miles for a pie-in-the-sky, maybe-maybe-not job? Wyoming goes easy on folks in the summer, but her winters can be tough on city slickers. 
grasping a suitcase in each sinewy hand, he started toward the cabin. Kate bit back a retort and focused on his bow-legged gait as she followed him inside. She lowered the box to the floor. Pittsburgh winters aren't necessary, aren't exactly mild. I believe I can handle all the seasons here, plus be an asset to the ranch. Asset? <laughs> he placed her luggage on the couch. Most of the hands are plain old ordinary folks, or cowpokes and horse wranglers who don't have much use for shopping malls and traffic jams. And we don't have much education, except for Mike, of course. Though I'll never understand why a guy born and raised on a ranch needed a fancy piece of paper from a university to do what he always, he's always done. I'm not here because of my education, Kate paused, searching for words. I just wanted to experience a different lifestyle. If only he knew how different. This is a whole nother world from Pittsburgh, he said. Back at the car, he stacked two small boxes on top of a larger one and headed into the cabin. She followed. He dropped his pile onto the floor with a thump. We work hard with our muscles, not our brains. You'll have to do more than sit in that fancy office filing your nails, you know. Fascinated by the way the undulating creases of his face rose and fell, Kate ignored the affront and added her boxes to the pile. He tapped a cigarette from its packaging. You'll have to muck horse pucky, wash dishes, clean toilets, throw hay, get up before daybreak, and toil till after dark, sometimes in the rain and the hail and the wind, maybe even snow. Most of all, you got to keep smiling at the guests no matter how cantankerous they get. He gave her a sideways glance. You reckon you can keep up with the crew in our so-called lifestyle? She readjusted her sunglasses. I reckon I can. I plan to give up my best. He stuck the unlit smoke between his stained lips and returned for a final load. After they emptied the car, he slammed the hatchback shut. Kate squeezed her fists and bit her lip to keep from swearing at him. At least the glass didn't break. Back inside, Cyrus plopped his load down. Your eyeballs look like you went too many rounds down a bogey's place. The cigarette drooped from one corner of his mouth as he spoke through the other side. You hungry? She hesitated. The strange old man reminded her of a teeter-totter. One moment he insulted her, the next he was kind. But she was hungry, and the grocery store was miles down the mountain. Not that she had any money to buy groceries. I'm starved. Get yourself settled in, then head over to the dining hall. Mrs. D. told me to scrape up leftovers from the crew meals I fixed this week for whoever wanders in tonight. Kate pressed her lips together to hide a grimace. Prison leftovers, known to the inmates as Patterson Puke, had ruined her appetite for reheated food. But she needed something more than cookies in her stomach. He stepped out the door and lit his cigarette. After he took a drag, he pointed toward a large log structure jutting from a hillside. That's the place over yonder. Follow the path. Thanks, Cyrus. And thank you for helping me unload the car. Oh, one more thing. He reached inside his shirt pocket. Here's the key, but you won't need it. Wyoming ain't crime infested like Pittsburgh. Kate watched him walk uh, amble away. You irascible old man.
couple more quotes. This one from Dick Gregory. I never believed in Santa Claus because I knew no white man would be coming into my neighborhood after dark. And from Groucho Marx, I played Santa Claus many times. And if you don't believe it, check out the divorce settlements awarded my wives. Lisa Buffalo, who moved to Tennessee from Idaho several months ago, offers us some inspirational thoughts about a certain Idaho winter in her book, Unfailing Treasures. She titled uh, this reading, Wasting, Wishing, Missing. Winter in Idaho should mean snow. Here in the high desert country, snow melt is what provides our area with water in the spring and summer months. Christmas week, our temperature almost reached 60 degrees, and I long for the beauty of snow-covered mountains. I must admit I whined, prayed, and reminded God of the importance of a thick white blanket for our peaks. Then in my soul I heard the small voice reminding me not to whine and waste God's daily gifts. Ouch! How many of God's blessings do we miss when we wish things were different? How many days and moments are wasted looking for things to be the way we think they should be? How often do we focus so intently on what we want that we miss what God has already given? What if we truly lived with the faith of a child, knowing our Heavenly Father will pr provide for our every need? What if we truly trusted God? P.S. A few days later, the snow arrived. finish up with two more this one by Dave Barry once again we find ourselves enmeshed in the holiday season that very special time of year when we join with our loved ones in sharing centuries-old traditions such as trying to find a parking space at the mall we traditionally do this in my family by driving around the parking lot until we see a shopper emerge from the mall then we follow her in very much the same spirit as the three wise men who 2,000 years ago followed a star week after week until it led them to a parking space. And this one by Charlotte Carpenter. Remember, if Christmas isn't found in your heart, you won't find it under the tree. We'll go out with those. See you next time. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story. <laughs>